Well, church, if you could open up your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke. This morning we'll be in chapter 1. So as we continue this Advent season, last week John preached out of the Gospel of Luke. This morning we'll be in the Gospel of Luke, and I anticipate that next Sunday, for our Christmas Eve services, we will be in Luke as well. But go to Luke and go to chapter 46. The context of this is Mary going and visiting her cousin Elizabeth and having a really a realization in a new way that she has the Son of God growing inside of her and that she is blessed. And so, hear the word of the Lord, Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble state of his slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you used... Mary, like you use so many other sinful humans to play a pivotal role in the history of redemption. Lord, we do not lift up Mary any more than we lift up Peter or Paul or David or Moses, but we also acknowledge that you say that she was blessed. She was blessed because of where she was, of who she was, and of what she was able to do. But this morning, I pray that you will draw our hearts to what your spirit inspired her to say and what your spirit inspired Luke to record, this prayer, this song, this blessing. May we be blessed by it this morning. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, I want you to imagine being famous. Just imagine that. But imagine being famous for doing something that everyone who has ever lived has done. You're famous, but you're famous for doing something that everyone has already done. Dutch scientist Antoine von Leeuwenhoek, see how many times I get to say that this morning, is celebrated for seeing something that everyone who has ever lived has seen. In the 17th century, he looked at some pond water and consequently has gone down in history as one of the most profound biologists of all time. Of course, there's more to the story. Von Leeuwenhoek did what everyone who has ever lived has done. He looked at pond water, but he did so using a lens that could magnify his specimens up to 200 times, vastly surpassing the power of rudimentary microscopes of his day. What he saw when he looked at the pond water blew him away. And it blew away what you see and what I see when we look at it with the naked eye. He saw, in his words, we beasties convorting about. 
His magnification of something as simple, as mundane, as pond water, opened the door to the field of microbiology. So much of what we know about the most minuscule aspects of God's creation can be traced back to von Leeuwenhoek's observations of red blood cells, of protozoa, and the core components of the conception of human life. But of course, those things have always been there. Once more, everyone who has ever lived has seen these things. The only difference between one Dutch scientist was that he magnified them. He made them big. Whether he or you or I see the intricate structures of red blood cells, they're going to continue to do what they've always done. But when we see them magnified, when we understand their sophisticated construction, we ought to be filled with wonder and compelled to give glory to their creator. Similarly, whether we glorify the creator, our Lord, who, filled with loving kindness towards us, revealed himself, whether we glorify him or not, he is glorious, he is mighty, he is gracious, and irrespective of what we do or do not do, he is worthy of our praise. Yet when we magnify God, we align our soul with the foundational and unchangeable truth of the universe. Holy is his name. His name is holy, but when we treat it as such, what we're doing is showing our right response to his holiness. It's about our obedience. It's about our love. It's about performing what the Apostle Paul calls our rational service of worship. Perhaps the most prominent example of magnifying the Lord in those terms comes from Mary. Mary, the young virgin carrying the Christ child in her womb, worshiped the Lord by magnifying him. And her magnification of the Lord was not something she said out of obligation. Rather, it burst forth from her soul and from her spirit. Her words drip with Old Testament allusions, undoubtedly because the very same Holy Spirit that inspired the psalmists and prophets inspired her as well. And her words, recorded in the first chapter of Luke, are so identified with this concept of magnifying the Lord that they are referred to in Latin as the Magnificat. Magnificat anima mea dominum, or my soul magnifies the Lord. And once more, to magnify something means to take something and make it large, to make it great, to exalt it. Interestingly, to magnify means to make something big, and to glorify something literally has the connotation of making something weighty or heavy. So magnify means make something big, glorify means to make something heavy. So this, this is helpful to us because we're embodied souls living in a tangible world. And God, in his great condescension, gave us concepts that we can easily grasp. The Lord ought to be, in our minds, bigger than anything that we can think of and heavier than anything we can think of. Although he who is spirit doesn't weigh anything, he weighs more than we can comprehend. He who has no body is larger than anything that we can grasp. Church, does your reverence for God factor in these truths? In your mind, is God simply ethereal and winsomely whimsical? This time of year, we think about things in those terms, but is that all he is? And is your, in your heart, though, is the Lord of creation concept or concrete? 
Well, hear these words from the prophet Habakkuk. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no produce on the vines, though the yield of the olive shall fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there can be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yahweh the Lord is my strength, and he has set my feet like hind's feet, and makes me tread on my high places. The Lord needs to be so real to us that if we are left with no material possessions, we still possess the greatest possession on earth. This is a very Christmassy story here when we think about material things this time of year, that the Lord ought to be so great that if we have nothing else, we still have the greatest thing that we could ever possess. If, as the prophet says, there's no livestock, there's no produce, we still thrive and flourish because by his great covenant, we have him, the large, the weighty, the strong God of our salvation. When all is stripped away, God is still there. When you feel like all is stripped away, God is still there. He's there on your worst day. He's there in a manner that is greater and weightier than anything you can imagine. And we acknowledge this as we magnify the Lord. We magnify the Lord. We make him big. And in doing so, we conform our heart and our mind to a reality that is his grandeur. Mary felt the reality of God, both because the Son of God was in her womb and also because in her spirit, she was magnifying the Lord. We, in a moment, are going to feel the reality of God in the supper. It's not that we touch his physical body and taste his real blood, but we know that he is truly present with us as he has promised us. We also feel the reality of God as we walk about in the world knowing that his invisible power, his eternal attributes, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. The immensity and the weightiness of God is what theologians call metaphorical disproportionality. Metaphorical disproportionality. That is to say, God can't be measured by a scale. God can't be measured by a ruler. However, he gives us words like glorify to make weighty, magnify to make big, so that we might take that first right step as we begin to worship. Wilhelmus Abrakel, regarding this concept, he said, How can a finite being, us, comprehend an infinite being? Truly, to perceive that God is incomprehensible and to acquiesce in and lose oneself in this, to pause and reflect in holy amazement, that constitutes knowledge of God and is the best frame to increase in this knowledge. We cannot comprehend the weight of God. We can't comprehend the largesse of God. However, when we begin to try to do that and we see that we can't do that, what we do is we magnify the Lord in our hearts and our minds. We magnify the Lord between our children, before our children and before a watching world. We magnify the Lord among each other for encouragement, for edification. But don't make this mistake, church. We never add something to God that he does not already have. Christ said in Luke, later in, the, in the, the book of Luke that if his apostles didn't praise him, if the crowds didn't praise him, the rocks would cry out. 
Something is added, however, not to God. The addition occurs within us. God is unchangeable. He is immutable. That's the other theological term. He is immutable. The author of Hebrews quotes the psalmist when he writes, And you, Lord, in the beginning founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. He says of Christ that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, making that connection that, that, that Christ is Yahweh. And he does so in that, in that quote earlier. He, he identifies Christ as Yahweh by applying the words to Jesus in the book of Hebrews that, the, that were unquestionably directed towards God in the Old Testament. The, the, the New Testament is full of these things where New Testament authors take words that were unquestionably directed towards God in the Old Testament, the one God of Israel, and then they apply them to Christ. But what he also teaches and underlines is the unchangeable nature of God. Regardless of what is happening, whether we worship him or we don't, he doesn't change. But church, when we pray, when we read his word, when we engage in fellowship, when we worship him, we change. Look once again at Mary's words. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. In response to his looking upon the humble state of his slave, Mary broke out in worship. The immutable God showed grace to a sinful human, and it compelled her, like it ought to compel us, to magnify him from the depth of her soul to rejoice in him with all her soul and spirit's vigor. Genuine worship penetrates church. It does what happened to Mary here. Authentic, sincere worship breaks us free from the corrosion and the rust that sets in from disobedience and apathy. Like the oil needed to loosen a bolt locked tight, The Lord uses right worship to penetrate our soul and our spirit, breaking us free from the corrupting agents of sin. The words you sing in the worship service or in your car, they they start somewhere deeper than the vocal cords. The text you read in the morning with your coffee or at night before you go to bed, it it seeps in deeper than the cerebral processes of your brain. The baptism that you undertook doesn't just make you wet, but it seals you in a manner that can be reflected on months, years, and decades later. The word preached, hopefully, is not an academic exercise. It propels you forward, back out into the world with fervent, obedient action. Genuine worship penetrates your soul and your spirit. Scripture records another prayer that's remarkably similar to that of Mary's. It's Hannah. Hannah, having been barren, conceives Samuel. Her response to the blessing of the Lord in giving her this child is recorded in 1 Samuel. Then Hannah prayed and she said this, My heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I am glad in your salvation. Her heart exalts in the Lord. Her horn, which is another word for power or majesty, is exalted in the Lord. She is emboldened to speak up even against her enemies because of what the Lord has done. His blessing results in her worship. 
And you can see its dramatic, holistic, penetrating nature. Church, we ought to be a people that joins in with Hannah, joins in with Mary, joins in with someone like David saying, my soul will make its boast in Yahweh. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify Yahweh with me and let us exalt his name together. We can't worship with only our heart. We can't worship with only our mind. We can't worship with only our strength. We can't worship in some disassociated way with only our soul or spirit. The Bible makes it clear that we worship what we love. And Jesus Christ commanded us that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So does your love of Christ penetrate your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you respond in worship with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, with your strength? Do you magnify God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength? And in doing so, do you feel, do you realize, do you sense, do you trust that the loving kindness of our gracious God finds new fissures to fill, new rust to polish, new gears of devotion to set into motion? It ought to. It ought to, church. <clears throat> it's a wonderfully simple, yet beautiful, com- beautifully complex object to focus on when we consider how to worship rightly, is that God is your Savior. It's such a simple thing. It's something that we often, too, too often take for granted. That Christ is God, our Savior. Mary says this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. We, with Mary, don't magnify an impersonal God. We, with Mary, aren't moved to the very core of our being because of a deity who is far off and unconcerned with us as individuals and as a people. We, with Mary, rejoice in a God who is our Savior. He is my Savior. If you know Christ, He is your Savior. You know, there's a uniquely Christian aspect to this line of praise, this trajectory of worship. It's not that we're just worshiping a God who is far off. We're not just worshiping a creator. We're not just worshiping a teacher. We're not just worshiping one who is wise, one who is old, one who is large. And so, consequently, this trajectory of worship corresponds with Advent, to Christmas, to the very baby growing in the womb of Mary when she uttered these words. The incarnation, God made flesh. It saw the transcendent become imminent. We don't magnify an impersonal God with our spirit. We don't rejoice in some generic higher power that is more conceptual than anything. Our souls magnify and our spirits rejoice in the triune God who ordained, accomplished, and applies our salvation. We know this God who is simultaneously imminent and transcendent because, as John wrote, there was a true light which coming into the world enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Mary prayed her prayer. Mary sang her song in the darkness which was enrobing the world, but was in its waning moments. 
The rising sun was minutes from breaking brilliantly across the horizon, fulfilling what Isaiah promised when he said, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. The light shone upon Mary, the light shone upon the apostles, the light shone upon thousands at Pentecost, and the light has been shining for the last 2,000 years. The sun who broke brilliantly into his own creation shone a great light of salvation that redeemed fallen children of Adam. He did so by taking on flesh. He did so by offering a flesh as sacrifice. He did so confidently, powerfully, sovereignly, with no rival, because the light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not overtake it. <coughs> Church, we magnify God from our soul and rejoice in our spirit because we have been bathed in the gloriously bright blood of Jesus Christ. John later wrote, For we ourselves were also foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We can't let ourselves, church, because of familiarity or because of comfort, enter into the wrong kind of familiarity when it comes to the mercy of God, the renewing of the Spirit, the saving work of Jesus Christ. The fact that the gospel is in all that we do is, is part of, of, of every worship service, is part of every prayer, is part of the name of our church. We can't make that become so familiar that it ceases to amaze us. We have to remember that salvation means being saved from something. That something might be hard to face, but that something was an unpayable debt and an unscalable wall. It was being an enemy of God. It was you and me being enemies of God. Puritan William Grinnell, not a Dutchman, mind you, referencing this state before salvation and the mercy we just saw in Titus 3, wrote these words, Before there can be a foundation for a firm, solid peace, these unruly lusts of men must be taken down. What peace and quiet can there be while pride, envy, ambition, malice, and such like lusts continue to sit in the throne and hurry men at their pleasure. Neither will it be enough for the procuring peace to restrain these unruly passions and bind them up forcibly. If peace be made between the hearts of men, it is worth nothing. The chain that ties the mad dog will in time wear, and so will all the cords break by which men seem at present so strongly bound together, if they not be tied by the heartstrings and the grounds of the quarrel be there taken away. Now the gospel, and only the gospel, can help us. There is nothing that can, can appease lust. There is nothing that can, that can diminish sin. There is nothing that can tie up us as God's enemies and as enemies of each other besides the gospel. There's nothing that can create heart-wrought worship that penetrating worship of soul and spirit besides the gospel. And so church, if you struggle with worship, 
Perhaps the first best step is to consider what Christ has done for you. If there are hurdles in prayer, in Bible reading, in attending to preaching, consider what Christ's gospel has done for you. If the darkness of this world and the sinful sensation has an, of it has an icy grip around your throat, consider that it is truly in its death throes because of what the gospel has done, that Christ has the victory. If you are saved, if you are united with Christ, if you are born again, this changes everything. But it also gently and lovingly places you upon that essential first rung that begins a spectacular heavenward climb of magnifying God and rejoicing in your salvation. You know, Advent and Christmas, they give us specific opportunities to, to be propelled upward as we recapitulate, replay this anticipation of the first coming of the Messiah, and at the same time, glory and revel in his incarnation, we touch on some very poignant moments of redemptive history. This morning, we consider these words of Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Church, this is the beginning of this line, the beginning of this prayer. But it communicates essential things for us that ought to, our hearts ought to be conformed to, our minds ought to be conformed to, our soul and our spirit and our strength ought to be conformed to, not just this holiday season, but particularly as we think about the incarnation. So may we be a people this season and all seasons that magnify the Lord. May we be a people this season and all seasons who rejoice from our soul, from our spirit. May we be a people this season and all seasons who rejoice in our salvation and our God, our Savior, born of a virgin, laid in a manger, adorned by angels and saints. Church, we join in this long tradition of adoring the Christ child this season. We do so along with the thousands of years that have come before us. We do so with the shepherds. We do so with the angels. We do so with the magi. But we get to do so in a way that they didn't get to do. We get to do so in a way that all of those in the Christmas story, the birth narratives didn't get to do because we get to look back on what Christ has done. And one of the most poignant, as I mentioned earlier, opportunities to remember what Christ has done is in the season of Advent, take the Lord's Supper. Because this acknowledges something. This acknowledges that continuity between that baby in the manger and that beaten, bruised, bloodied man on the cross. It's not the most comfortable. It's not the most pleasant. It certainly isn't the most picturesque thing to think about at this time of year. But Mary was promised that one day, she would, on looking at her son, be pierced to her soul. May we be pierced to our souls as we take the bread that represents his broken body, as we take the cup, which represents his shed blood, understanding that the incarnation, this humiliation that began in the manger in Bethlehem, culminated on the cross outside of Jerusalem, was the point of Christ's coming. It was necessary for him to enter our world as a baby. It was necessary for him to live a perfect life. But it was also necessary for him to die a death 
a perfect death, albeit a tragic death, for you and I whose tragic cases could not be remediated by anything besides the perfect blood of the God-man, born in a manger, crucified on Calvary. So I'll invite John the musicians to come up, and as they do so, and as they play, we invite you to come up and receive the elements so that we may take part in this Lord's Supper. This is his table, and he invites you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the blessing that is Advent season. Lord, as we come before this table, I pray that we can see that continuity between the manger and the cross. That we can understand that that little body held by Mary on that night, whether it was silent or raucous, is aside the point. But that little body was a body that was destined and designed for sacrifice. So I pray that we can echo Mary's words, that we can magnify you, that our rejoicing can come from our soul and spirits, and that we do so because of a salvation accomplished by the work on the cross, with the manger in the background, the perfection of the incarnation, the foreordination before time began, and here we are in our times receiving the benefits applied by your Spirit. We thank you that you are a triune God who redeemed us perfectly. We ask that you are glorified and magnified as we continue to worship you this morning. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.